Hey, Risto here with George Mason University. I'm here with Miguel Quenerstedt and Louise McQuaig, and we're truly spanning the globe on this one, broadcasting from Sweden, Australia, and Virginia. Um, so you can only imagine the uh, time differences here. Um, the paper we're discussing today is titled The Fantasmatic Logics of Physical Literacy. Uh, we'll link to the article notes, but well, uh, first, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having us. Physical literacy is this hot topic, and what I mean by hot topic is, let's say in the last 10 years, it's been all over the place. It's loved by a ton of PE teachers, loved by some researchers. It's thrown around in ways maybe it wasn't originally meant to. The definition is, depending on who you ask, it's different. Um, it also has some controversy behind it in some areas of research. So to begin with, what is your relationship with the words physical literacy and what what made you write about it? Well, um, for me, it started when Louise was visiting Odebu University and, and uh, uh, we... Uh, couple of years ago and then we talked about different kind of publications and ideas and and uh, um we we um our third author andreas mord a phd student at the time was doing a presentation um about his work he comes from history of education and he used the this theory um as we're going to talk about here, in, in order to, to understand the, the history education classroom in terms of, for an example, populism and other things. So, so um, it started there to looking at different um, seductive practices in education. And, and you, Louise, can continue around how, how you see that kind of where we ended up. Sure, we were... We were really, Mikhail and I turned around and looked at each other at the end of that seminar. We were just enamored by the ways in which the framework had the potential to reveal the particular linkages of the ways that the field has been caught up in particular practices as rationales for why we should be considered to be important or to have status within a, the context of a school curriculum. And there's been a long history, as we, we briefly articulate in the paper, there's a long history of different ways that we have tried to mobilise PE, be it through saying that we were going to um, solve the obesity crisis, whether or not it's about, in the 70s, addressing young people's self-esteem, reducing chronic um, illness and any of the lifestyle diseases. And for us, what the logic kind of has the potential to do is to really drill down into how does the field get attached to these particular solutions and these particular practices through a really rather sophisticated uh, way. And when we started to talk through it, we both realised that physical literacy was the latest seductive practice, that it was so powerful. And both of us had either worked with colleagues or had been through curriculum reform movements where we had seen the influence and the momentum around physical literacy and the way that it had become the magic solution, not only for young people in terms of their 
their physical movement, but also for the field in terms of physical literacy was the way that we could get that legitimacy. Um, finally, right. <laughs> finally get that golden ticket and the solution to getting compulsory physical education in schools. Yeah. And it was so seductive that it got you to to write about physical literacy, um, which again, when you look at physical literacy scholars, I didn't see you two writing on physical literacy. When I saw the paper, I was like, oh, this is interesting. And so, but the analysis that you have is really great. And in the paper, you talk about ideologies of PE and Louise, you kind of started to go into this. You define these by two terms, uh, beatific narratives and horrific narratives. Can one of you explain these and maybe give some examples of, of these in PE? Sure, sure. I can, I can start. I mean, the basics is, I mean, a beatific narrative that we are looking for are utopian visions of, of ideal future in, in, in a sense. And, and for example, the promises of PE in sport to you become a good person, a good sport, this character building, it's a, you become a better nation. And the horrific narratives are stories that, um, around the disasters or crisis if we are not having physical education or physical literacy in this case. But physical education, for example, has been um, we have a nation in decay and, or declining youth or obesity epidemic. And these are the horrific stories and we can solve it by more physical education in a certain way. So it's, it's the kind of ideological narratives that... Uh, we are using to to promise things or justify PE in, in different ways. Yeah, and it was interesting because you could definitely see, depending on what you wanted out of PE, you could choose which route you want. How do you want to create it? If you're trying to go for some grant that's from the National Institutes of Health in the U.S., you talk about oh the obesity crisis and you know students are at risk and if we don't save them through this intervention then we're all doomed, right? Yep. So, Louise, did you want to add something to that? I did. I, in my PhD, I actually um, tracked curriculum um, construction in Australia. And that's why I was so struck by the beatific and the horrific narratives, because every time a curriculum, a national curriculum or a curriculum reform agenda comes along, there's always this nervousness and tension for physical education. It feels it's going to be left out of the core curriculum. And what happened um, from my perspective in the Australian curriculum, looking at the historical development of it, people were quick to recruit a horrific or a beatific narrative to try and sell physical education. And so there is this scramble to try and work out. And it, it's not intentional. I don't think people actually think let's scare the living daylights out of them or let's sell. Um, and that's the, the real beauty of the, the logics lens is that it unpacks the subconscious, the ways in which these particular messages get taken for granted and become accepted. And yeah. we, we, I remember saying to Mikhail, this captures so beautifully how we latch onto these ways um, and these narratives to actually almost rescue or justify our own um, investment and faith in physical education. So, so let's, let's talk about that logics of critical explanation framework. Um, you, 
you used uh, Glynis and Howarth. Uh, they distinguish between three different kinds of logic. So social, political, and then the term that I had to Google and the term that caught me on the title of the paper to read it was phantasmatic. Can, uh, can you explain the difference between these? Yeah, sure. And uh, I mean, it's again, it's an analytical tool to understand something in a particular way uh, that Glynis and Howard had been used in different contexts and other researchers had been used to look at curriculum reform and stuff. But but in, in short, the social logic, when when that is part of the analysis, it answers the question of what in terms of what is the continuity of a practice, what uh, shared assumptions, what is what is immediately true or not questioned within the practice and in this sense in fiscal literacy what is what is the continuity of fiscal literacy how is the story moved forward uh, the political logics uh, answers the question of how uh, well it, in terms of looking at the conflicts uh, the contestations of the practice how it is transformed where are the where is the friction between normally an us and them two kind of positions within the practice and, and the last one, the phantasmatic logic, which is great in the title of the paper, but, but um, uh, that answers the question of why. I mean, why are we continuously investing in this practice? What is the ideological grip? What is promise? How, it, how, it does it, how is it and how does it become seductive in a sense? And, and we don't mean it in a negative sense. We need it because we do that all the time. We use these kind of phantasmatic logics. In, in, in a lot of things we do. So it's, it's well, what is the ideological grip and what, what is the problem with that? Right. So what, what was the overall, just the overall purpose of the paper in general? Well, the aim was to, we wanted to do this analysis and, and try to, to, to formulate or identify or discuss uh, the logics in research and policy around fiscal literacy. And, and, and briefly, what is claimed in the name of fiscal literacy and research and in policy? So we can discuss fiscal literacy if it is to, uh, towards becoming ideology. Is there an ideological closure of the debate? Or is it a healthy debate within fiscal literacy, policy and research that can move the field forward? Right. And so can you explain a little bit about what you did in the, in the study? And then we'll uh, go into what, what you actually found in the discussion piece. Yeah, of course. I mean, for Louise and myself, it was, we spent a lot of time understanding and reading the, the theory and the analytical concepts and, and, and um, Andreas could, could work on, on the data a little bit, but, but again, we wanted to have a look at both policy and research because it's two areas that actually promised things about fiscal literacy. We could have looked at other things, but we thought that would be two areas to have a look at. And, and we wanted to articulate the assumptions what makes fiscal literacy tick, what, what, what are the, the taken for granted narratives and so forth. But, but what we did is we, we looked at, at journal articles between 2015 and 2019, uh, which had a main focus on fiscal literacy and whether also formulated promises or, or uh, logics 
but it's it's the main focus fiscal literacy and we did some snowballing and we we ended up with 21 articles it's it's not a complete review of fiscal literacy research rather it's a it's a, it's um a look at several articles that focus mainly on fiscal literacy and see where the promises are regarding the policy we looked at frequent frequently referred to documents in these articles what documents do they refer to in policy mainly from from uh, Australia, United States, Canada, UK, but also uh, New Zealand, uh, a couple of other countries. Um, policy documents that in a sense have an authoritative status that is used and referenced and cited in other documents. So again, it's not the policy in every country, but it's in some countries that have moved more into um, fiscal literacy and so forth. Uh, so it's, it's mainly Anglophone-speaking countries that we use. Um, the limitation of the use of our language in that sense. Right. And it was interesting to see, because you did uh, site-specific uh, excerpts from policy in different countries, and it was interesting to see how embedded physical literacy is in some of this policy verbatim. And it's not that it's been around for so long, but it's it does seem like this this promise that you talk about. So when we when you look at the the way you broke down kind of the results, you obviously looked at the the three separate types of logics. Um, what social logics were present in physical literacy? Meaning, in in your paper, you talk about what do we take for granted. So what social logics were present in physical literacy? And, and in the what we do in the paper is that we t talk about research and policy separately. A lot of it is the same, but we also wanted to see the differences in in, in a way to to have that. But the social logic is again what 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 do we agree? What do the policy document and, and research agree on that fiscal literacy leads to? For example, movement competences in various contexts. Um, it leads to uh, more movement throughout the lifespan, positive effect like self-esteem, motivation to move and be physically active. It leads to knowledge about movement. It's, it's a, that's a commonly shared narrative around physical literacy. Um, also, most of them are closely connected to health in a sense. Not all of them, but most of them. And, and also that, that fiscal literacy can build a bridge between fiscal education and sporting society. That That is a close connection. Some of them, is they are totally amalgamated in one, and some talk about it bridges sport and PE in that sense. So that seems to be the common sense what we all agree on. What do you say, Louise? Do you want to add? Yeah, I... I think we found it really interesting to see the subtle and nuanced differences between research and policy. And one of the things that we really found the logics to be quite useful to do was to actually flush this out, the ways in which the research community might still hold on to some contestation or some broader notions that where they acknowledged some of the complexity around what physical literacy might actually be and what practices, most importantly, logics is very much about practices, what practices 
were captured under that particular notion of physical literacy. Yet in policy, you get this enormous sense of certainty and um, real clear statements. And when you say, Risto, that it was embedded deeply in, in the policy documents, I think even Mikhail and I talking to each other were surprised to discover what we found internationally was being done in the name of, of physical literacy. And probably our biggest surprise was the scope and the ways in which it is expanded um, beyond our original sense of how it was being defined. Yeah. And that's where you get that real usefulness of, of the logics model. And that was what captured us right from the word go, that we both had this sort of intuitive response to the model, thinking that it could, in fact, flush some of these um, these tensions and their nuances and the, and the certainty. What what some of the Foucauldian lecturers might actually think of as sedimentation, the ways in which things become really set. Um, so that's, that's what I found fascinating yeah. at that level. I found it interesting in, in looking at policy documents in the US, which again, policy is a little bit less researched in the US than it is in, in Australia or the UK, because we don't have a national curriculum and because we you know, have shape america that gives recommendations and mandates but they don't really you know it's all at the local level but when when we changed over to physical literacy i think people just assume that we're just using a new word because all the previous ones were the physically educated student will now it's the physically literate student will so it was just like the substitution of this word and people just started using physical literacy. And I don't know if it was always really fully understood. Um, and maybe this kind of leads us into the us versus them camp. And so you talk about political logics is the second one, um, where the field is in a us versus them state, or better yet, as you state in the paper, idealist versus pragmatic approaches. So can you talk about those? Yeah, sure. And, and, it's important that this this uh, political logic it's, it's only in research actually because in, in when we look at policy there is no contestation and conflict in the policy document it's a completely conflict free narrative of fiscal literacy it is a, a quite consensus driven policy but when we look at and 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 they pick up from from both of the of of, of from the different um, camps of the struggle. And, and it's, it's, it's more of a struggle of definition of fiscal literacy and research and, and what to include or exclude regarding what is practiced in its name. Um, and at one end of, of this debate, it's, it's, uh, it's the holistic version of fiscal literacy, uh, building on Margaret Whitehead's work with inseparable dimension that is valuable. Fiscal literacy is valuable in so right. Um, it has to. It's in the context of the philosophical underpinnings and phenomenology, and as a consequence, fiscal literacy is then viewed as a process that cannot really be measured because fiscal literacy is a process that is ongoing throughout life. And on the other end, uh, it's more focused on evidence-based practice, accountability, um, and, and fiscal literacy then is an outcome of a practice rather than a process. 
that can and should be assessed and measured through, for example, fundamental movement skills, motor development, fitness tests, motivation tests, shuttle runs, and so forth. And in, in that position, the connection to health is more explicit, while the first one talked more about well-being and uh, capabilities in life and so forth. So that it's it's um, and there are questions that that this com- ends in this clock. Can you be physically illiterate, for example? Mm-hmm. It's different answers to that one. Yeah. Um, and, and, and those kind of questions. Is, is uh, literacy something you achieve at a certain age? Can literacy decline or can it d- decline? So those questions are in the space of this conflict that is, isn't answered. Is it, is it measurable or is it not? Is it, of yeah. course. And I and I thought back to the paper that you wrote on salutogenesis and the the when you were on the podcast before you talked about the person swimming in the river and where the current is strong and versus the current's not strong. Like, do you ever in this case do you arrive at physical literacy? I am physically liter- literate. Well, your body's changing the whole time. You're aging. Certain things are you're losing and gaining. Or can you ever be physically illiterate? Like, is there a zero-sum game here? So go ahead, Louise. No, I was just saying um, there's a a message for the field here as well because Nicole and I haven't necessarily been leading scholars in either camp. We found our engagement to be quite fruitful because I know uh, from from my own perspective, I didn't necessarily feel um, loyal in some ways to either camp, uh, not that we're that any of us can come to um, a particular study with a neutral lens, but it was really useful not to be physical literacy specialists or scholars and to be able to actually use the logics framework to see some of these tensions and the ways in which they were falling out. I think this is a really good lesson for us all to be embracing, and I know that we were talking earlier, Risto, that you're actually having the opportunity through this podcast series to be able to engage with research and literature that's more diverse than what you normally would. And this is where I think it's a really powerful, useful idea for us uh, to try and embrace or engage with some of the literature and some of the scholarly work that's going on in the research um, area of our field with a new lens and a fresh lens. So that was, that was something that was quite powerful yeah. for us. Yeah, and of course, I mean, we also got the help from Andreas coming from history education, not had done anything yeah. in PE. And when he looked at the research, when he looked at the policy documents, I mean, he has no stake in this at all. He saw the same, some of the same things we saw. We could do a, a joint analysis. And he thought, well, this, with this tool, I can see this, these contestations. I can see these logics in this way. And from, for him, it's, he doesn't even know anybody of these people writing these articles. And he still had these kind of, wait a minute, can you see this? What, what's about this? What, 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 what's the deal here? It was really interesting to have, to have his voice in this. And, and his voice is in the paper throughout. Yeah, and it's interesting to bring somebody from a completely opposite field. I just did a brain exercise with one of my friends. Uh, he's a um, neuro neuroscientist at NYU Abu Dhabi, and I just said, "Send me two of your last two papers, and let me see if I can understand them." Because he talks about working memory, he talks about 
you know, he's looking into movement and how it affects working memory, but at such a different level than what any of us would do. Like he's in a lab looking at brain scans. And so it's interesting to get somebody completely outside in your case that looks at it and finds the same things yeah. because they're looking at that analytical framework. Yeah. So, um, so let's get to the most exciting word of the day. I feel like this is Pee Wee Herman's Playhouse. So word of the day. Uh, maybe some people get that joke. Other people don't. Anyway, so phantasmatic logics. Let's start with the horrific narratives. And so I'm guessing that this is all about the obesity epidemic and it's taken over all of our children's bodies and they're glued to their cell phones and they only play Xbox all day and they're inactive and they're at risk and only physical literacy can save them. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, well, it's a little bit different in the two strands of research and in policy here, but because in, in the so-called pragmatic strand of fiscal literacy, um, research not seldom describe it as a public health crisis with concern of obesity levels and sedentary behaviors and so forth. So that that is true, while the more idealist strand argues that if we don't appreciate the philosophical principles of fiscal literacy by going only to the solving the obesity um, idea, this will only limit the potential of fiscal literacy. So also here is a kind of conflict, but it's a different kind of horrific narrative. It's still fiscal inactivity exists in both and that, that they're alarming the levels of fiscal, um, fiscal inactivity. But in policy, uh, I would say most policy documents, uh, the horrific narratives are a little bit toned down, particularly in relation to the obesity. The fiscal inactivity is there, um, but it's not as strong as research tried to in, in the start of the paper. Oh, there's alarming levels of obesity and so forth. Policy doesn't start in the same way. Some do, but most don't. But they also add a kind of kids today narrative kind of, oh, when I was young, then we yeah, did this and this. Kids today, they just do this and that, that kind of horrific narrative. But, but then some documents also add the, the um, health of a nation is at, at stake here if we don't introduce fiscal literacy. I would say that it's mainly the Australian ones that have that kind of strong language um, around around uh, that kind of horrific narrative so a little bit little shifts in the horrific narrative but but i agree the obesity is there but more physical inactivity than obesity louise would you agree that um you see that in in australia is would you say that that's like a a nationalist thing or is that just the way that it's described in the health of a nation i think it was for me it was quite fascinating in that as i alluded to earlier i had done some analysis across the century and there was a strong return to the same type of discourse as you saw around the 1940s, 1950s in terms of a fit nation. And um, there was very much this idea of, of physical literacy contributing to the strength of the nation and, and the overall idea of in, interestingly um, contributing together and that once again, that we have this responsibility, this responsabilization of, 
of physical um, literacy and, and how it contributed to supporting everybody else and being a strong nation together. Um, I'm sure we'll get to it, but uh, it was more for me the beatific narratives that were surprising, uh, I think, for both Nicole and I, and that was what was the power of the, the lens, was both of us probably went in thinking that when we looked at the documents, we would see the horrific, because we had seen so much horrific, particularly around the obesity epidemic and how physical education could rescue um, fat kids or distressed kids. or But it was the, the beatific narrative of what physical literacy could promise in the way of social justice and um, happier communities and being able to work together with collaboration. And those things, I think, were even in the... And predominantly, actually, in the Australian documents were what were most shocking for us. Would would you say, Mikael? Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, the beatific narratives. I mean, they both are because they are beatific. It's so hard to resist because it sounds so good, and that's the the power of the ideology here. Because I mean, um, if we would have looked at why we should have more moderate to vigorous physical activity that is built more around the horrific narratives of what would happen if we don't have that. And that is, that's not a, a story that catches on as easy, but the beatific narratives, it's more complex and, and um, it's more easy to throw out that kind of promise, I think. And I mean, of course, it's, it's the main beatific narratives that are, is, there, is around movement competencies. And, and yeah, fine, and we agree on that and, and, and in many senses. But it, it also adds then lifelong safe engagement. Um, you, uh, you, there are promises of increased fiscal activity levels, fiscal activity participation, um, and then contribution of fiscal literacy to human flourishing, to quality of life, self-confidence, lifelong learning, integration, empathetic interaction with others, and so forth. So there are a lot of promises both in research and in in policy of, of where this leads to. So it's, it's a really strong and far-reaching beatific narrative in both research and policy, which is so powerful. Yeah, and so, and, and, go ahead. Sorry, Risto, I was just going to say what was really powerful for both of us was when we presented uh, this work at ICEP at um, Adelphi in, in New York. Everybody in the room, um, themselves were a little bit taken aback when when you unpacked it and put it in through that particular lens of the narrative, be they horrific or beatific. We actually had a lot of interest in what we were saying and a lot of enthusiasm because people were struggling with thinking that physical literacy was in some ways being mobilised beyond its remit. Um, and so... I found that a really powerful experience to watch others because Mikhail was presenting. I uploaded that one to him and I could just watch how everybody was responding and it was really fascinating to watch. Yeah. So I think that's a good yeah. transition to the to the question of, you know, physical literacy has promised the world a lot. Mikhail, you just listed a bunch of these, uh, the beatific approach of we're going to make them lifetime movers and there's going to be an increased economic output and we're going to keep them away from disease and bring about equality. And, but do you think that 
physical literacy is promised something that it can't deliver on? And, and for us, it's important, just before I go into that question, I'll, when we're writing this paper, we're, we're not trying to take away all the positive things that is done in research or in, in, uh, in practice around physical literacy, because a lot of good things through beatific narrative, it sounds like that we shouldn't have beatific narrative, because of course we should have. Mm -hmm. That is the kind of stories we want. And we're not taking away the good things, but we are questioning if all these together creates an ideology that is too seductive in a sense and and also that um, when you put them together and we have also of course put them together not each paper or each policy promises all these things but right. it's promised in the name of fiscal literacy but of course in a sense it's not our role to say if fiscal literacy has promised something that it can't deliver it's up to the ones making the promises to prove that it can deliver that but in some policy documents they promise a lot and i don't think that most of it is proven and that is of course why it's a lot of research on the measurement of physical literacy is going on because you want to prove the effects of physical literacy but there we have the two strands what is how is it measurable or not but i think uh, what struck me was some of the causal chains between when you look in one policy document this is what you're supposed to do when you do physical literacy. And this is what we are promising when we frame it. For example, that in public document, it can be that knowledge in techniques and tactics in volleyball. And you're promising lifelong movement and well-being. I mean, for me, that's quite a stretch to, from those two. Uh, it seems like you bring in everything you want to do and then you promise all these things. So it's, it, if, if we with physical literacy promise, if we work with children um, crawling, running, climbing, being in the outdoors, then they will have a much better motor development, which means that they have a um, easier way into different movement activities, which probably would mean that, well, I can agree on those causal links and those promises. But it's more like when you go from let's do more sports and we have a more equal society. I'm not really sure that it's up to them to prove that kind of causal link, I would say. Yeah. Louise? And, and the, the caution for me is that in our efforts or in our over enthusiasm as we move to an ideology and we close down debate and we close down questioning, then we start to get to the point where we've promised way beyond our capacity to deliver and we get dismissed again. And we, we by saying it's going to be everything, but not being able to clear it, be clear about what it, in fact it is, we fall yet again into that trap of trying to be everything through physical education, almost like a scattergun attempt to make sure that if we hit the right thing, we're just going to make sure that we'll get that um, status that we seem to praise. And that's where I started with the logic. Fundamentally, we need to perhaps have a much more succinct, 
clarity about what it is that we are contributing to the education of young people when we bring PE into schools, rather than trying to harness these topics and let them go too far and beyond what they're promised or what we can provide evidence for. That was, that was for me where I found our work to highlight some of the dangers of, of where physical literacy was going, which, you know, is the old Foucauldian thing. It's not that everything's bad, but that it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. So let's yeah, talk exactly about... In that. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. But of course, and then that's really sad, that if there is an increasing seduction of physical literacy and it becomes an, like we're arguing, that the, the, we are saying that the risk of an all-inclusive grand narrative, what it is to be physical literacy, then we probably, in, in the fear we talk about an overinvestment in physical literacy, not an investment, and that's not, but an overinvestment, and that is a move toward ideology. And, and we want to keep the debate going rather than closing down. That's why we think the debate within research is a healthy debate around what is physical literacy, what is it not? Can you be physical? Is it the process? That's great. Go on. But we need that in policy. And we also need researchers invested in physical literacy looking at and criticizing policy because that we don't see as much and saying that, well, wait a minute, policy, in this policy, we couldn't promise that. So don't do that. So it's more like of a criti- the critical discussion needs to be ongoing, both from without side, but also within the, the fiscal literacy research and policy uh, community. Yeah. And the next, next part is a very small piece in general from your paper, but that just really picked up with me. And it's do you think that physical literacy has taken more of a deficit perspective in the, and that the child is lacking physical literacy versus they're in the state of always becoming more physically literate? Yeah. And I think, I think that is important. One of the conclusions we had that the child becomes sufficient in, in these uh, political ide- uh, narratives that we, we, we talk about. Um, and of course, for me, it's as, as, when we more focus on the assessment in policy, I'm not talking about what research do when they try to measure something and an aspect of, I'm talking about assessment protocols that governments and, and, and do in schools with all kids. It's pushing fiscal literacy towards that children are lacking fiscal literacy, towards something you have and don't have and policy documents stating that children should achieve physical literacy by a certain age, rather than if we look at that process, that's not, it's something that is going on um, and so forth. Um, so so I, I, th- I think that is important to, when we talk about and promise things like this, what, how do we position the child here? That was a real strength of what uh, Mikael brought to the analysis. and. Um... I I thoroughly understand in terms of the ways in which the deficit model is used with children in so many ways. And that's probably where we did actually bring in a lot of the other work that we've done um, working through a salogenic lens. And that really kind of highlighted for us this idea of how physical literacy can be used as a resource um, and how it can be developed in that way rather than in terms of this absolute that 
you know, it's fair to say too that we weren't naive in understanding what happens in the policy creation process, that absolutes do become part of the process and part of that political game, but also that it's important for all of us in research to continue to monitor how our research gets translated into policy because that's when you get that slippage and the dangers that emerge from that. Yeah. So let me end with this last question. What's the big risk here if we keep doing what we're doing? It seems like when we talk about the policy piece that it's pretty straightforward. It's not taking sides. And you talk about the research debate around physical literacy is actually being fairly healthy because it needs to be balanced. And so is there a risk of what we're, if we keep doing what we're doing or are we, is this a healthy debate? We'll see. I mean, for, for me, we're trying to, we're trying to say here is like, there is a risk uh, of ideological closure. If we overinvest uncritically in fiscal literacy, if we end up with unrealistic and unsubstantiated promises like the ones we've mentioned, um, then fiscal literacy policy that kids will be affected by become these holy grails that, that we defend or take for granted. And that, that, that is, of course, problematic in, in, in a sense. Um, we just keep, hope to keep the discussion going and, and, and help see what uh, so fiscal literacy can do the good work that we can do with fiscal literacy. And if it, for me, if it, if it works, it works. But uh, don't promise too much. And, and when you look at some of the assessment protocols, and there are recent papers that have looked particularly at assessments coming out in, in a, a special issue that comes out soon in the, in the curriculum journal. But, but um, what happens when you start assessing uh, fiscal literacy through knowledge about uh, fiscal activity recommendations or daily step count and, and so forth? We're not, are we close to measuring fiscal literacy as body mass index. I don't know. I mean, for, for me, it's be careful when we start going out assessing all children in school and then claiming all these things that this measurement of your daily fiscal activity or your step count will lead to a better society. Because I don't think so. That's the risk. But keep the discussion going is, is our point. And also to to learn the lessons from some, another practice such as sport. There was a huge, in Australia, um, turning point where sport all of a sudden couldn't promise all the things that it had promised, a good character, equality, all these other beautiful things that were sold in the name of sport. And then, of course, we had socio-critical um, scholars who really highlighted the ways in which there was gender inequalities and a whole range of things that sport couldn't offer. And sport became a dirty word. You saw sport replaced in many of the documents in Australia with physical activity. So the, what's at risk here is that if we start to overpromise, we will get to the point where we have clear evidence that we can't deliver on our promises and all the beautiful things that can be achieved under the name of physical literacy will be thrown out. I call the baby with the bathwater throwing out. Uh, so 
that that for me is one of the long-term um, risks that we have and a risk that we have continued to replicate in our field, that we get over-invested in a particular practice that's going to rescue the field. And then when we can't deliver on that, we end up grabbing the next thing that comes along and, and losing all the beautiful things that were attached to, mm -hmm. for example, sport or a whole range of practices that have come out um, within our, our field. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, this paper made me think a lot. Uh, it taught me a new fun word, which I really enjoyed. Uh, and, but overall, it was just this in-depth analysis and breakdown in the paper of to really, and I, I highly suggest anybody that's out there that wants to read this paper to actually pick it up and read because there's so much more that we didn't talk about here that really goes into the depths of this complicated term that's been kind of fraught. And I think you being outsiders in physical literacy research, you're not like your line of research in physical literacy. I think you did a really good job of kind of keeping an even, even route and assessing it for what it is. Um, so we'll link to the full article uh, and you can see the full citation there in the comments section. Um, thank you both for um, staying up late and, um, you know, taking your coffee break and hopefully my air conditioning going on during the last question uh, doesn't come through on the podcast, but, um, but it was great. Thank you so much. Um, if you are, and Risto, thank you for all the work that you do. It's, a, yeah. it's an absolute pleasure and it's lovely to be able to do a, a global hookup in these times that keeps us all connected. Yeah. So, and it's, terrific. it's fun for me. So it's great. So for, for those of you listening out there, if you feel like the podcast is missing a voice, a group, uh, a scholar, please let us know um, and we'll uh, love to expand our, our reach. Thanks for listening.